Welcome to the Science Ramble, where each month we look at a part of the human experience and how it links to a recently published advance in the natural sciences. My name is Simon Lichtinger, and today it's all about how a study by researchers at the Harvard Medical School and MIT might shed some light on how we think when we think about others' thinking. It's cold outside. Well, not proper cold, but the drizzle doesn't help. We're making our way through the mud, where there used to be a field last summer. And while you might not feel the same way, I seem to draw some rather dubious enjoyment out of burying my boots in the sludge with every step. The slow drift by of the trees lends contrast to a lively conversation about this and that, and then this again. But once in a while, there be a silence. It's the good kind of silence when our minds wander, connected only by the foggy landscape they explore. And then there's this reflex. What are you thinking? I'll ask. I've asked this question a lot lately. Maybe it's just because I go on so many one-on-one walks these days for obvious reasons. Somehow, the question carries the connotation of an intimate relationship. The opening monologue of the 2014 film Gone Girl even refers to it as the primal question of a marriage. I like to think I'm not as dramatic as the events of that movie, nor do I believe that it's a question reserved for couples. I'd even go as far as to say that the wonder about what's going on in other people's heads is fairly universal. But that's not always where these ponderings stop. You may call this rather self-centered, but is it not equally curious what happens in my own brain when I try to decipher what yours might be up to? That I could hold a conception at all of a mind outside my own. The term for this in philosophy and cognitive science is theory of mind. It should describe the processes by which we ascribe mental states, that means usually emotions, knowledge or beliefs, to others, and how we use them to rationalize or predict their behavior. Imagine you're seeing your friend eat half a bar of chocolate and put the rest on the table as they leave the room. Thoughtful as you are, you you pick it up and place it in the fridge so it doesn't melt in this cheerful summer scenario. When your friend comes back, having realized they're still hungry, where will they look for it? In the fridge or on the table? A situation like this one is called a false belief task. It turns out that up to the age of about three years, most children will answer the fridge. They cannot yet process how the person who left could not have known about the change in location. At about the age of four or five, this understanding develops and the children now have a theory of mind. What exactly this theory of mind entails, though, was a big unknown among those who articulate these questions through the 20th century, and continues to be today. Some of the earlier speculations on the matter is now known, rather uncreatively so, as the theory theory. The ideas that our minds have frameworks develop at some point in childhood to deal with mental states in other people. They amount to some sort of folk theory of mind, which separates our inner life from those of others. When we judge something like the false belief task, we therefore invoke some learned rule of this is how people work to arrive at a prediction. This is elegant, but not uncontested. It's been argued that it places too high of a burden on reasoning capacity, and the simulation theory has been proposed as an alternative. According to this approach, when we reason about other people's mental states, what we actually do is mapping them to our own, putting ourselves in their shoes, as one says. By using ourselves as a model of how people act, 
We can get by using the machinery we already have in our brains and just need to project the results to make a prediction about how someone will behave. We should note at this point that these descriptions aren't mutually exclusive, of course, and hybrids have been brought forward. While the philosophers argue on that one backstage, let's put all of this into some context. What if it isn't just about chocolate? What if I use my theory of mind to outmaneuver someone, or manipulate them? Humans seem to do this all the time, at scales reaching from scoring the last cinema roll on the tray to multi-billion dollar trading. On the other hand, empathy is closely linked to perceiving other minds. How could I help someone, or even just try to not say the wrong thing, if I can't perceive and rationalize how they think and feel? When some of the worst and best things we do are linked to theories of mind, it would be worthwhile investigating them with what modern science has to offer. Processes in the brain can nowadays be imagined as broken down into what neurons do. Neurons are brain cells which look a bit like dandelions. They gather information from a multitude of hairy, fine dendrites, process it and pass it on via their axon tails. This happens via a fascinating interplay of electrical and chemical signal transmission, which unfortunately there is no space to go into at this point. Suffice it to say that these cells underpin cognition. Now it's been established for some time that there are special neurons involved in perceiving the actions of other people, the mirror neurons. They were first identified in monkeys, where they were seen to become active, one says they fire, upon grabbing food, as well as seeing another animal grab food. These mirror neurons could therefore be involved in learning movements and coordinating them. It's also been suggested that they may be responsible for contagious yawning. However, the mirror neurons only represent physical, directly observable movement. They could therefore not be responsible for a theory of mind of the sorts introduced earlier. Still, the idea that a certain group of neurons might also exist to encode other people's beliefs is intriguing, and features in the work published in late January by a group in Boston entitled Single Neuronal Predictions of Others' Beliefs in Humans. A particular region of the brain, the dorsomedial prefrontal cortex, this is just a bunch of words describing where it's located, has previously been shown to be involved in social cognition, for example, but not limited to a theory of mind. However, no one had investigated what individual neurons do in this region. It is possible to measure something like this in humans with small devices called microelectrodes. They are used routinely in brain surgery and can record the activity of many individual neurons over time. In conditions like Parkinson's or epilepsy, patients may be helped by placing a deep brain stimulator under their skull. The process also involves measuring activity using microelectrodes on the brain surface. And what I found quite surprising when I first heard about it, it can be advantageous for patients to be awake for this procedure. Because they're based in the neurosurgery department of a university hospital, the researchers could recruit volunteers who were to undergo the surgery to also perform false belief tasks while single neurons were monitored. Because the patient's heads need to be fixed in place for this to work, it was only really feasible to do a verbal version of the task. So, with the microelectrodes attached, they would be asked questions like, you and Tom see a jar on the table. After Tom leaves, you move the jar to the cupboard. Where does Tom think the jar is? However, that alone is not enough to determine whether particular neurons handle the beliefs of others. You need a comparison, a question as similar as possible to the one about what Tom thinks, but without actually involving Tom's thoughts. They decided to use false physical tasks. You and Tom take a picture of a jar on the table. 
after taking the picture, you move the jar to the cupboard. Where is the jar in the picture? The idea is that this sort of task would be a control, and controls are vital to good experimental design. To make sure that one isn't just measuring, say, the effect of a difference between the past and present state in the story, the scientists keep this difference constant. The jar is still being moved to the cupboard, and we're interested in where it used to be. But only the original false belief task involves what another person thinks. Needless to say, they found an effect of the other's beliefs specifically on some neurons. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't see the study published in this way. Now, before we go into what exactly they found, we should give some thought to what sorts of effects were looked at. What the electrodes measure is the rate at which each one of a group of neurons fires. That may be up to six times a second. When a neuron is said to be particularly active, what is meant is that it fires at a faster rate than the others. To analyze the data, the researchers then try to determine which neurons are activated in the false belief, but not the false physical task. They do this using a Fisher discriminant, which means they ask a computer algorithm to choose the group of neurons by which it can best predict whether another person's belief was involved or not. This shouldn't be taken to mean that they can actually predict what the study participant was thinking. The group of neurons, for instance, is chosen freshly for each task, and therefore it's more like a prediction in hindsight. However, this approach allows for some useful statistics to be done, and so they roll with it throughout the paper. Enough of the method section, back to their conclusions now. Out of just over 200 neurons, the team could identify 42 neurons, which, taken together, predicted whether the task was false physical versus false belief, with an accuracy of about 80%. This is because their firing rates went up significantly, shortly after the question on the false belief task started. But this isn't all they found. Take another question they asked the study participants. You and Tom see a jar on the table. After Tom leaves, you open the jar and leave it in place. Where does Tom think the jar is? In this scenario, although something has changed which Tom doesn't know about, his information about the jar's location is still correct. This is consequently a true belief task. Using a similar analysis to before, the algorithms returned a different set of neurons, 49 this time, to differentiate between false and true belief tasks. This result suggests that not only are there neurons which hold the beliefs of others, but there are also some which encode for whether or not we think that belief is true. Well, not quite. There are several possibilities which haven't been ruled out at this stage. It could be that there is something about the fact that Tom is unaware of the change which triggers the neurons in question. Or perhaps these neurons are representative of any belief in general, whether it's your own or Tom's. So in order to conclude that there are neurons which hold others' beliefs specifically, the authors of the research article go on to address these concerns. Firstly, they constructed cases in which Tom would be aware of the change. You and Tom see a jar on the table. After Tom leaves, you move the jar to the cupboard while Tom watches through the window. Where does Tom think the jar is? The neurons involved in handling these circumstances are to a large extent the same as for the traditional false belief task. Therefore, they represent someone else's beliefs irrespective of the status of awareness of that person. The second concern, how they separate from one's own beliefs, is a bit harder to get around. It is difficult, and in the context of this experiment impossible, to hold beliefs one knows to be false. So while a direct comparison with the false belief task cannot be made, the reflection upon one's own hypothetical false beliefs might just do. You see a jar on the table. After you leave the kitchen, the jar falls off the table onto the floor. 
where will you expect to find the jar? In this case, Tom is completely eliminated from the question, and turns out that it is a different set of neurons which handles it. There is a separate circuitry in the brain to handle one's own beliefs, as compared to those of another person. The paper goes on for a while with more controls, but also more refined conclusions. It is shown how the set of neurons which was identified also stays the same, when not the location, but the type of object is in question. The researchers then demonstrate how finer details, such as the precise object involved, can be inferred from the complete set of 200 odd neurons. But let's now recap the discussion about the theory of mind from earlier, in light of the recent research. The study has shown how theory of mind is linked to a subset of neurons in the dorsomedial prefrontal cortex. However, the choice of which neurons were monitored by the experimental setup was to all intents random. Another point of caution comes from the fact that no correlation the scientists found was perfect. There was also no indication of whether the neurons in the groups the algorithm has chosen to best backwards predict the narrative are actually linked, or might not have completely different functions as well. The results are very encouraging, as they provide a link between abstract concepts philosophers are drawn to and the way we know of the brain to work in terms of neurons. But they also highlight again just how complex of an organ the brain is, and do not yet call the race for either a theory theory or a simulation theory. As we jump between patches of tall grass, interspersed in the mud like atolls in a tropical ocean, you answer my question. Now I know what you were thinking. And I don't have to wait long for the return. But what are you thinking? You ask. I pause for a moment. So, I've read this paper recently. And we walk on for the fade out. Thanks for listening to The Science Ramble. The show releases on the first of every month, so make sure to join in again next time for some brand new science. Thank you.